We thank you for visiting Christian Bible Temple and pray the following message speaks to your heart. is Palm Sunday, the beginning of what is called the Passion Week. Passion means suffering, means what the Lord went through uh, throughout this week. And we all know the story, we read them this morning in the two Gospels that give us the detail and quote, quote the prophecy from the Old Testament one of the most amazing prophecies ever written. And we know, and if you do not have it clear, maybe I need to clarify this morning, that the Word of God is not a book written by man to tell us about God. The Word of God is God's Word given to man to reveal himself to man. So when somebody, uh, you know, some people debate, who wrote the book of Hebrews? God. As a matter of fact, in English and Spanish, the first word that appears in the book of Hebrews is the word God. Okay, so he wrote it. He's the author. The writers of scripture were not the authors, were just the writers. The Lord is the author of every book in the Bible. And Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 gives us that amazing prophecy some 500 years before Jesus was even born, that one day he, the Messiah, would be coming into the city of Jerusalem. Because it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion meaning Jerusalem. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just. That means righteous, and having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this prophecy, as I said to you before, is one of the most extraordinary prophecies ever pronounced with regards to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And the fulfillment of this prophecy, we see it spelled out in Matthew 21 that we read this morning and John 12. Now, though the event of his ent uh, entry into Jerusalem is uh, the triumphal entry, what it's called, is registered in all the four Gospels. It is Matthew and John who quote the words from the prophet Zechariah. Now, the people's acclamation fulfilled the words of Zechariah 9.9 and also the ones from Psalm 118 and verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this prophecy is a lot older than the prophecy of Zechariah because the psalm that was written by King David and that was a thousand years before Christ. Okay, So it was 500 years before Zechariah. Now the Lord's royal office, and that's why I entitled this message, The Joyous or Happy Apparition of Zion's King. Uh, 
the, ro the Lord's royal office is frequently mentioned in the scriptures and symbolized by Melchizedek, David, Solomon. And this is why it's called the king of glory, the king of Israel, the king of kings. Through David, he says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The father says that about the son. That's in Psalm 2, verse 6, which is the first messianic psalm. And then uh, Jeremiah says of him, A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. The Lord our righteousness, or Yahweh Tzitkenu, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. And last of all, Zechariah, through the prophetic lens, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, and a colt, the foal of a donkey. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I forget who it was, and we were talking about the chances of anybody <clears throat> fulfilling one of the messianic prophecies. Do you know what the chances are of you and me fulfilling one, just one, messianic prophecy? It's one over one with 17 zeros. And the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled how many? All of them. Okay? Now we see here, first of all, the royal office, the royal office of the Redeemer. There are four ideas associated with royalty. The first one is supreme dignity. A king is supposed to be dignified. Okay? A king is considered the head of a nation. More so than a president or a prime minister. A king is the head of a nation. The, the, the nations that have a kingdom as a government, a monarchy, the king represents, is the head of that nation. Okay? And that's why people do not elect a king. It's hereditary. Now, the Lord is the head of also his spiritual empire. The head of the church is not a pope. The head of the church is not a patriarch. The head of the church is not some bishop or archbishop or pastor or minister or missionary. The head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Men, men have been exalted in God's word and in his service to him. Men like Moses, Elijah, Solomon, David, Daniel, and others. But Jesus, Jesus is the Lord of that house where Moses was a servant. For it says, for this one, meaning Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. 
but Christ or the Messiah as a son over his own house whose house we are Hebrews 3 3 and 5 through 6 okay uh, very clearly what it tells us here in those first chapters of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is better than better than the angels better than Moses better than the Levitical law better than Aaron better than all the prophets because those were servants of God and every one of them was faithful but they only had fragments of the revelation Jesus Christ is the son and he is the builder of the house all things were made by him through him right and he is the king of kings and lord of lords now Jesus is the lord of that house where Moses was a servant he is Elijah's lord and he is greater than Solomon he himself said it one greater than Solomon is here now don't you think that that would have been a little bragging if it weren't true imagine me telling you I'm better than Moses I gotta be crazy unless I am the Messiah which I am not I assure you okay but just to get the illustration he said one better than Solomon is here is because he is who he is I am the way I am the truth I am the life no man ever said that ever except him because he is the way he is the truth he is the life okay all honor and glory belong to him he is over everyone and everything he is the fairest over all the children of men and greater than the angels in everything he has the preeminence he is the head of the body the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence we're told by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1:18. so the king has to have supreme dignity secondly the king has legislative authority the king has the right to establish laws for the ruling of his kingdom that does not happen in the United States at least not yet the president cannot enact any laws did you know that the president cannot make any laws the executive power cannot make any laws that befalls Congress the legislative power they are the only ones that can make laws and then the courts the judicial part of government interprets the law but the president cannot make any laws he can sign the laws and approve them or veto them but then even then if he vetoes them and Congress has a two-third majority they override the veto and they pass the law without the president but in a, in, a, in a kingdom that doesn't happen in a kingdom it is the king who makes the laws and we see that in the Old Testament when Israel was a theocracy it wasn't Moses they say the law of Moses it's not the law of Moses it's the law of God God gave the law through Moses Moses didn't invent the law some people think the law is only Ten Commandments no the law is 611 commandments or 613 
commandment. And people say, I keep the, or oh, I try to keep the law. It's not a matter of trying, it's a matter of doing it. And if you don't even know the 613 commandments, uh, you're not going to keep them. Okay? But the king is the one who establishes laws for the ruling of his kingdom. And for this reason, the father declared from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Matthew 17, 5. His sermon on the mount gave evidence of his authority time and again. When you read the sermon on the mount, on the mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, time and again, you're going to read that he says repeatedly, you have heard that it was said by them, them of all time, such and such a thing, but I say unto you. He would not have said that if he didn't have the supreme authority, okay, or the legislative authority. I say unto you. You read there, Matthew 5, 21 through 44, and it's there. Also, the people were astonished, it says, because he spoke with authority. And God's word tells us that the Father loves the Son, and the Son says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. As he closes the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, All power, all authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go into all the nations. Okay? So, we see he has supreme dignity, legislative authority, and the king has unlimited wealth. Jesus is the Lord and proprietor of all things. All the riches of nature and glory are his. His treasuries are unlimited, inexhaustible, and eternal. That is so encouraging when you read in uh, Philippians uh, 4.19, the apostle Paul says, But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Okay? And then the king has universal dominion. A king by right and name without subjects is nothing more than a shadow. Christ's absolute reign extends to the highest heaven and to the lowest hell and to the whole of the universe. Amazing how throughout history nations have fought for power, and they still do. And yet the Lord has more subjects than any king throughout history and all the kings put together and he never fired one shot. Okay? In his character as mediator, the Lord has dominion over his church for he dwells in her. He promised where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. The Lord is here today. The Lord is here today. And though we do not see him, he sees us. Okay? He administers all the affairs of the church, receives her homage. Who do we worship in this church? There are churches that worship a Jewish young woman. Or they worship a whole bunch of men and women. They call them saints because they achieve something. The biblical definition of a saint is not somebody who achieves some great feat. 
according to the Bible, a saint is nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. And if you're saved this morning, you are a saint. You say, who, me? Are you kidding? Yeah, I'm not. I know it's hard to believe. But that's what the Bible calls us saints. Not because of who we are or what we do, but because of what he did. Okay? So let's, let's get our definitions uh, uh, straight. And um, he receives our homage. What do we do with the Lord? We worship the Lord. In this church, we worship the Lord. Okay? And uh, also the Lord subdues the church's enemies. And throughout history, she has had many. And you know some of the worst enemies the church has ever had are from so-called religious people. When the devil cannot win the church, he joins it. And I, I am sorry to say this, but even in our church, we have had our share of demons. That's why if you see one, kick him out. Don't bring him to me. You kick him out. We're all warriors. And when, of course, we don't kick him out physically, but we stop them with the word of God. Stop that. That's wrong. We have the authority given to us by God to do that. Because the devil hates the church, and especially a church that preaches the gospel. You can bet your bottom dollar that he, he has his guns pointing at that church. And I don't, want to, I don't know about you, but I want to disturb the devil. And if you call on the name of Christ, live a life differently than the world. Don't imitate the world. Imitate Jesus. Live according to the way he lived. Okay? Because that's what the Lord wants us to do. That love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That's why he died on the cross. And that's why we're celebrating resurrection and Passover. Okay? Because of what he did for us. If he did something for you, your life needs to be different. If there is no change in your life, maybe you're not saved. That's why we're also called to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Lest we believed in vain. Okay? Now the Lord subdues the enemies of the church. He enlarges the parameters of the church. And will continue doing it. Till he returns, when his kingdom shall fill the whole earth. So those are the features of a king. Secondly, we see the particular features, not of his office as a king, but of his character. How is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, how is he? First of all, he is just. He is righteous. He is personally immaculate, made in likeness of sinful flesh, but holy and without spot. His life was a display of this. His enemies confirmed it. Judas, who betrayed him, said, I have sinned.
by betraying innocent blood. And he felt such guilt about it that he ended up hanging himself. Okay? Pilate, who judged him and condemned him, and his wife, Pilate's wife, called him that righteous man. He told her husband, don't have anything to do with him. Care for what you do with him. I had a dream, and I'm troubled. And of course, he didn't listen to her. Do you know the Pilate? History tells us Pilate ended in disgrace. In the Gaul, which is today's France, and he committed suicide. Caiaphas, the high priest, was assassinated. The Lord subdues his enemies, doesn't he? And Pilate himself said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, but he's not. He's not. I bet you that today in hell, you know what Pilate is doing in hell today? He's doing this. And you know how long he's going to do this? For the rest of eternity. Because one thing you cannot wipe off your hands is blood. He is like Lady Macbeth. How many of you have read Macbeth by Shakespeare? Huh? He was a thane in Scotland, and his wife was ambitious and evil, and she egged him on. They assassinated the king in order to take the throne. And they got it. But they had to assassinate a whole bunch of people because their guilt made them suspicious of everyone. And in the end, what happens? Macbeth gets killed. And Lady Macbeth goes insane. And in the sleepwalking scene, she comes in rubbing her hands. And she says these famous words. Even all of Arabia's bombs shall never be able to cleanse these little hands. And then she dies. She was robbing the blood of her hands because of all the murders she committed. There's one horrible thing, the most horrible thing you can live with is your guilty conscience. Because you can escape from everything and everyone, but you cannot escape from your conscience. So make sure you have a clean conscience. Because your conscience, when it's not clean, accuses you. But when the Lord died on the cross, not only he took our sin away, 
he also took our guilt away. And this day, I can rejoice and say, thank you, Lord. That's what he means when he says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Not only free from sin, but free from guilt. Because sin brings about guilt. And when you have sin in your life, you feel guilty, and because you feel guilty, anybody that says anything about you or to you makes you angry, because sin makes us angry. Because we were not built that way. That's why one of the best things you can have in your life is a clear conscience. The Apostle Paul at the end of his life, he said what? I am free from the blood of all men. What a, what a testimony. I hope we can say that, all of us, at the end of our lives. But the Lord died on the cross and rose again for us to be free from all that. Okay? He is righteous. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ was a display of justice. He died to justify the law. Even though it was the greatest injustice ever committed, he was even judged against the law. Yet, he died to justify the law, and he fulfilled the law with his death. He nailed all 611 commandments on the cross so that you and I don't have to live according to that law. But he could not do away with the law unless he paid the price. And that's what makes us free. I'll make sure that the ushers get $500 fine from that person. I'm going to do like in Carnegie Hall. Your phone goes off, $500 fine. And this is more important than Beethoven. Hard for me to say that. But the kingdom of our Lord and his spiritual laws are all based on justice. Is God righteous? Is God fair? More than. More than. Do you know how God would be absolutely righteous if he sent every one of us to hell? He would be perfectly okay, justified. But in his mercy, he died for us. He took hell on himself so that we don't have to go there. So every day you get up and every night you go to bed, thank God for, your, for his salvation. Yeah? His kingdom is a kingdom of justice, peace, joy, and every other good thing. He makes all his subjects just and righteous. So that's his, those are the particular features of his character. First of all, he's just. Secondly, he's meek and lowly. We see his humble estate, his home, though of high origin. His mother and his stepfather, his adopted father, were both descendants of King David. But yet the home was poor and humble. 
His birthplace, totally insignificant. He was born in a small, very small town of Bethlehem in a manger. Now, his disciples, all from the populace, the people he associated with, with the lowest, the rejects of society, people we would not associate with probably ourselves. And he says, come unto me, all you who work and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He invited everyone to come. And this is also illustrated in the case when the text was fulfilled. You know, why was it so important? Why was it that it was prophesied that he would come riding on a donkey, not a horse? Because, first of all, the introduction of horses in Judea was forbidden by God in the law of Moses, the law he gave to Moses. The people of Israel could not bring horses into the land of Judea. Okay? In order to avoid their training for war and therefore trusting themselves instead of trusting in God. That's why David wrote these words. He said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20, verse 7. David wrote this psalm, but then his own son, Solomon, was the first to introduce horses in Judea against the law. And for that reason, Christ didn't come riding on a chariot or a war horse, but came riding on a donkey as a sign of humility and peace. Also, in those times in the Middle East, when a king came riding on a horse, it meant he was coming for war. But when a king came riding on a donkey, that was a sign of peace. He was coming in peace. So the Lord came riding on a donkey. He was coming in peace. When you read the book of Revelation, chapter 19, John sees him coming from heaven riding on a white horse. The first time he came in peace. He's the prince of peace. But the second time he's coming for war against the devil and his cohorts. Okay? So we see here, that's why it says that he is just having salvation and lowly. The salvation he was bringing was not to free the people from the Roman yoke. The Jewish people thought that he was coming like a, a judge, a Gideon, or a Samson to free them from their enemies. They, they, they misinterpreted the whole thing. But he, he was coming to free them from the yoke of sin and the horrible wages of sin. Yeah? Like we're told in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's where he came to, to free us from. Okay? They missed it and totally misunderstood him. And then his character is that he brings salvation. And this was his great design, his principal object, to bring salvation. And that's why it says when he was born, the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. He did not come to condemn, but to save the world from their diseases, demonic possessions, and the guilt and condemnation of sin, having salvation in himself and in himself alone, 
abundantly and freely. We all know John 3.16, or at least I hope you do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then the following verse says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's why he came. And then thirdly, the glad reception we should give him. We must rejoice in his equity and justice. He will fulfill his word and all his promises. If he fulfilled everything that had to do with his first coming, he will fulfill everything he had that has to do with his second coming. We must rejoice also in his humility. He will not despise the poor and needy. Are you poor? Are you poor? How many of you are poor? Only Ivan. Two people are poor. Everybody else is rich. Wonderful. I hope the offering is very rich today. Okay? Since you're so rich. But the reason I asked that question was, if you are poor and you're needy, rejoice because he will not despise the poor and the needy. It says in Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break. Do you ever see those reeds that grow in the river? No matter how fragile it is, how bruised it is and ready to collapse, he will not hurt it. That's an illustration of his tenderness, of his care. And it says, and, a sm and smoking flax he will not quench. Do you ever see when you put out a candle, the wick still is lit, right, and smokes? He will not even quench that. Some people go like that and they put it out. He will not even quench that. He'll let it, let it burn. Talking about his gentleness, his care, his love. Huh? But he says he will bring forth justice for truth. In Isaiah 42, 3. He does not reject anyone who comes to him. So it doesn't matter how weak you are. It doesn't matter how poor you are, how needy you are. He will not reject you. He'll, he'll accept you. And we must rejoice in that he has salvation. Do people rejoice when the liberator comes to free them from the oppressor? You ever watch any documentaries when the Allied troops marched into Europe in 1944-45 and they freed the people from the Nazi scourge? How people are out in the streets rejoicing in Italy, in France, even in Germany, that suffer so much under Hitler's regime. People rejoice because you cannot keep people oppressed for too long. And oppression is not good. Okay? But uh, uh, spiritual oppression is the worst. He came to free us from that. And that's why he says that when he came, he came to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61, 1. Does a patient rejoice when an infallible doctor comes near? Does the prodigal rejoice when he hears the father's forgiving voice? Welcome home. But sadly, the multitudes that rejoiced when he entered uh, Jerusalem, they cried, uh, they cried. Very soon, they followed their high priest, demanding his crucifixion. So the ones who cried on Palm Sunday, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, four days later were screaming, crucify him. One big lesson I learned from that is you cannot trust mobs. You know, and that thing that, oh, the majority is right. Not always. Remember, before the flood, the majority was wrong. Noah and his family were the uttermost minority before the flood. After the flood, they were the majority. People say, oh, democracy is the best way of government. I like what Winston Churchill said, ex-prime minister of the United Kingdom. He was so wise. They asked him, what do you think of democracy? He said, democracy is the best, worst system we have. Did you get it? Why? Because even though it might be the best that we have, it ain't perfect. Why? Because it's made up by men. And anything man is involved in is imperfect. Not only it's imperfect, but it deteriorates. So you say, which is the best form of government? The only one, a theocracy. Ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Amen? Because he's just and righteous and perfect. However, one day soon, the Lord will fulfill another of Zechariah's prophecies. It says in Zechariah, Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. Zechariah 12.10 One day the nation of Israel is going to see him. They're going to realize who he is. And they're going to mourn. They're going to cry as one who cries for a son, his only son. Imagine you having only one son and you lose him. Well, grief, and that's the kind of grief they're going to have. And finally, in truth, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one in Zechariah 14.9. Therefore, let us rejoice in our king. Glory to his blessed name, the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One, this day that we're living in today, society does not want the name of Jesus in their circle. You're not allowed to speak about God in school. 
You're not allowed to speak about God in government. They have no room for him. But on that day, he will have no room for them. So rejoice. The day is coming. Our Lord is the great victor. Not only he was crucified and buried, but praise God, he rose again. He's the only one who's alive. Confucius is still dead and buried. Buddha is still dead and buried. Mohammed is still dead and buried. And every pope is dead and buried. And every prophet is still dead and buried. But the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. And his tomb is empty. And one day soon, he's coming again. Amen? Are you ready? Our Father in heaven, we come before your presence this morning thanking you for the Lord Jesus. Thanking you for the tremendous sacrifice that you did on the cross for our sin. Thank you, Lord. You never leave us nor forsake us. That we may boldly say today, The Lord is my helper. I shall not fear what man can do unto me. Thank you, Lord, that through you, we are more than conquerors. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for giving us eternal life. Not only eternal life, dear Lord, but abundant life. You, give, you have given us forgiveness and freedom from sin. Thank you, Lord. For this day and as we remember today the sacrifice you made for us on the cross we also remember your, your communion table you told us to do this as, may, as often as we do it in remembrance of you and today it just happens that we are celebrating this great event of Palm Sunday, but also we are remembering your sacrifice through the elements that you left us. And this morning, dear God, I pray that as we partake of this communion table, the bread and the cup, that we will take it with thanksgiving. We thank you for listening to this message and pray that the Word of God spoke to your heart. To listen to previous sermons, please visit us at www.cbttbc.com or anchor.fm forward slash 
cbt-sermons.